Hey everyone, Alon here. Really excited after recording the first official episode of Security Tokens Uncensored this morning because the whole premise of this first episode was to sort of walk people through my background a little bit, but more importantly, some of my friends' backgrounds and talk about how we got to where we are today in the security token space. As it goes with my conversations, we were a little all over the place, but the general idea was that we started in the crowdfunding world, all these rules and regulations happened, and we're here now. And I don't want to be super redundant and go over the same stuff right now uh, before we even start, but I just wanted to thank you for listening. Hope to see you at Security Token Summit and CIS. And I uh, really appreciate you being here. So please share with a friend and subscribe. Boom. All right. It says it's recording. Uh, welcome, everyone, you guys on screen with me, but also the rest of the world. Um, uh, this is the first official episode of uh, Security Tokens Uncensored. Um, I am Alon Gorin. Um, uh, with me today, I've got Andrew Dix from Crowdfund Insider, uh, Crowded Media Group, Jor Law, um, founder of Verify Investor and now head of uh, issuance at T0, and Kinsey Cronin uh, from Prime Trust. Um, guys, so, the, uh, so I'm here uh, today because one, we did this, this thing last week and it was a lot of fun. And I figured I should do this regularly, um, get my friends on video, talk about Security Token Summit, talk about CIS and, and what's going on in the space in general with, uh, with security tokens. And this crew that I got on this first official episode is here because we all share a common background in the crowdfunding space. And uh, you know, I'll, I'll go one by one and everyone will give their backgrounds, but we, uh, you know, we're in the crowdfunding space for a long time. And because of that, we learned all the rules around uh, Reg D, uh, sort of uh, 506C, the public kind of offerings, um, regulation, crowdfunding, Reg CF, um, Reg A plus, and all of the rules around all of that. Um, and, uh, and so now that security tokens are starting uh, to take over or starting to be this new wave in, in the crypto space, um, we're all sort of uniquely qualified to answer um, questions about what most of you are doing. So um, you, you I want to feel like we're qualified, right? We feel like we are. We feel like we are. Um, and and we, we, for many years, reluctantly learned way more than we ever wanted to know about some of these rules and laws. Jor, uh, you know, has a background as an attorney, so, so he knew more than all of us and, and was always one of the first people we called. But in general... Um, uh, you know, we, we thought it would be fun to talk about the crowd or fintech in general, our backgrounds and how we, we got to this space and set the stage for a fun, a fun conversation here. So because I'm just looking down at the way uh, Zoom um, put, put our images, um, at least for me, um, I thought, Andrew, why don't you give us a bit of background and we'll start with you. Yeah, so um, I founded Crowd, Crowded Media Group back in the, the very early days of uh, crowdfunding, as Alon has just shared, uh, soon after the JOBS Act was signed into law. And as Alon uh, said, 
the Jobs Act created these exemptions, these security exemptions, which allowed online capital formation. Uh, this includes Reg D 506C, Reg A plus, and Reg CF regulation crowdfunding. Uh, over the years, I think that uh, online capital formation kind of was the genesis of, of all FinTech. People started to think, well, wait a minute, if you can do that online, I can do all these other things online, and the industry blossomed. And then along came ICOs, and we uh, kind of started covering ICOs simply because people started sending us all this information about them and saying, look at my offering, and we're like, what is this? <laughs> now we're at the, the STO phase, which is effectively compliant ICOs or security token offerings or digital securities or smart securities, whatever you want to call them. They're, right now, they stand as, as securities blockchain. And um, I think it's a fascinating industry, and I think that we're in the very early days of something kind of cool. All right. Uh, yeah, yeah. So um, before I even get to Jor, the, the sort of impetus of, of all of it from, from my end too was what you were saying with the, with the online fundraising and the crowdfunding. So my original idea from my last company, Invested In, came while I was working at MySpace. And there was one year at MySpace where there was this funny sort of vanity metric that doesn't really mean too much, but was really funny was um, on the online gaming that was going on on open social, which was like the, the network across Google and Friendster and Bebo and MySpace where people could play games. Um, uh, Farmville had sold more digital, you know, tractors in the game, like sold for real money, uh, digital uh, John Deere tractors than John Deere sold real tractors in the real world. And I remember thinking that and going like, how could we use this technology to help people raise money online? And, and that was, uh, you know, that must have been 2008, 2009, something like that. So, so Jor, uh, give us your background. Um, would, would love to hear. Yeah, so I'm a corporate and securities attorney um, that's just been interested in tech and, you know, just random side businesses kind of all, all my life. And within the space, you know, I, I got into crowdfunding largely because my law firm had clients that were always looking at alternative finance. And when crowdfunding came up, uh, we were one of the early law firms in the space. Um, we, you know, when the Jobs Act was announced, uh, I, I created a company called Verify Investor, started thinking about what a product uh, for crowdfunding would look like that ultimately became verifyinvestor.com, uh, which was a Title II solution. Um, and, you know, just, just through a, a couple of the different companies I'm involved in, they all were servicing crowdfunding one way or another. And as everyone started doing these ICOs and looking at blockchain, I never really got into it uh, because I looked at it and I just thought, okay, well, this is great. This is like a ledger technology. It, you know, a nicer, you know, database or a nicer spreadsheet or a nicer, you know, ledger doesn't necessarily change everything. But one thing that I thought it would change with security tokens. So long before people were focused on security tokens, I started looking at it and saying, you know, thinking, how can I get more involved? So our law firm was talking about security tokens before everyone else admitted they were security tokens. Um, verify investor started, you know, uh, trying to tell people like, hey, you, you can verify um, and do it the right way. Um, so we had some of the earliest STOs uh, kind of came through our platform. Uh, I was a director of Prime Trust, and it was a um, escrow provider in, you know, crowdfunding. And, you know, I, I led the charge to tell them, like, let's get into blockchain custody. 
Um, so, you know, that's kind of how I got into the space. You know, I, I drank the Kool-Aid um, and started helping people build uh, the infrastructure. I got involved with companies like Polymath and T-Zero to really uh, kind of help them um, build their product and or their business. Yeah, I mean, because once it, ICOs started seeing what was going on and people at least were, if not uh, being uh, compliant completely, they were at least at a certain point starting to, to realize they needed to verify people were accredited investors and do things right. And a lot of them did use verify investor, right? Yes. Yeah. So, and then, so that was a good segue to Prime Trust because Kinsey... Uh, is that Prime Trust, Kinsey? Uh, give us give us your background because I know even before Prime Trust, you were in crowdfunding. Yeah, I remember meeting you years ago at a at a conference um, or around a conference table, and hearing about some of your plans and thinking like, who's going to show up to that? But no. <laughs> <laughs> I was. Uh, I mean, I wasn't. I wasn't doubting. I was just wondering and. Sure. <laughs> Um, I started working in, uh, yeah, specifically in equity crowdfunding under Reg A plus and Reg CF um, before some of those laws came into effect um, on the platform side at Start Engine, working directly with the um, the uh, issuers and kind of working through what that was going to look like. We had no idea what it was going to look like. It was very much modeled after Kickstarter. Um, so we were designing these campaigns around um, what had worked in the crowdfunding world, not so much about what around what had worked in the traditional um, like IPO world. And uh, I remember turning people down who wanted to have their investments made in Bitcoin and saying mm-hmm. like, uh, like infrastructure, we just, we can't even, we're not going to invest in the ability to make, um, to make that possible, to make that payment possible. That was pretty early on. Obviously, we've changed our tunes a lot since then. Um, and uh, and at Prem Trust, uh, we're doing a lot more than just the <clears throat> offerings. Um, basically, the, sh- the shift came, as you guys have mentioned, when um, ICOs were raising a lot of money. People were talking about them. There became this big demand for them. And the realization seemed to hit many of us at once who'd been working in crowdfunding that, like, so we, we had this whole legal infrastructure in place and we knew what we were allowed to do, but what we were executing was not nearly as successful as what ICOs were executing. And of course, they were making some mistakes that we were not willing to, we weren't willing to go into sort of the illegal territory we were, we were observing. Um, but we could see there that that was the opportunity that if we could kind of bring these two worlds together, that was where success was going to live for us. That's awesome. And you guys are, you know, like a, a licensed custodian as well. It's not just, uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, so Prime Trust is a, is a uh, registered regulated financial institution. It's a, it's a trust company, um, but it's also really even more so it's a tech company that provides the technology necessary to do this in such a, a new way at scale. So um, doing legal compliance and onboarding, um, potentially thousands of customers at a time um, for different projects, making sure that um, all of that sort of uh, banking type of work is handled on the back end um, for businesses that are managing their, their platforms, uh, whether it's marketing, um, it's, it's marketing and it's all the front end customer service stuff. It's the design of their product, but they still ultimately need to meet certain regulations. That's what we're doing on the back end. Cool. Yeah. I mean, 
because if, if I go back to the original ideas uh, at the MySpace days, uh, we called it social fundraising because even at the time the word crowdfunding didn't exist. Um, so uh, if you look at all those original domain names I bought around, it was, it was about fundraising, social fundraising, and we had no idea what we essentially wanted to do was, was illegal because even the first examples that I put in the first uh, decks that I had outlining um, uh, invested in, we, it was, I'm going to raise money for my company. I'm going to sell my services in advance, but the people who support me at the beginning are going to own a piece of the company. Um, and, and at that time that was, I had no idea that you couldn't post on Facebook or MySpace or Twitter or whatever, um, that, that your company was fundraising because I was just this idealistic techie. Um, so, uh, but once, once the rules did come through and, and we were looking at, um, you know, crowdfunding from, a, uh, from the Kickstarter days, um, there was a bit of a, a sad realization once it did become legal that it is uh, much harder to get somebody to invest in a company than it is to sell them, them a product, right? Um, I mean, Andrew, you, you, I'm sure you saw this at the very beginning. Yeah, why is that? I mean, that, that always kind of perplexed me as to why is it easier to sell you know tickets to a movie or a t-shirt than to actually purchase ownership in a company that you think has potential so so i saw this like times 50 because we probably had 50 or so clients over the years that invested in that we powered the eventually we didn't have our own crowdfunding site we always did but it was more of a testing ground for features and stuff mm. um we we powered other people's sites and what i learned from from everybody's is that Humans are uh, very, as, as a group, I don't mean, there's lots of individuals who aren't this way, but as a group, people uh, want instant gratification. They right. don't want to wait for anything. Um, they want, uh, and, and they're selfish. And so if you say, I'm going to give you this thing, and you basically are going to instantly get it, um, people, people are willing to buy that. And, um, and they don't really realize, and, and people, especially, if you're in the crowdfunding stage, you're probably even earlier than most early stage startups and most early stage startups, if they're successful, which most aren't, take what, eight to 10 years on average to get some kind of exit. So, so people, people don't value that as much, uh, at least yet. Uh, the culture might change and people might learn, but people just never, never really got it or, under, or understood that part. Um, but now there's these hybrid models in different places, right? Well, there's hybrid models, but I think part of the weakness of the reward space is that it's, it's effectively e-commerce. I mean, really, when you look at the vast majority of, of uh, um, sales that goes through that system, it's really e-commerce. When I think of crowdfunding, I think of securities crowdfunding, I think of investment crowdfunding, I think of mainly early stage investing today, but I expect to see that to uh, go further on down the capital stack where you're going to see more mature companies that leverage online capital formation to raise the growth capital they need. Um, and I think security tokens is part of this evolution. It's just we're pretty early and there's a lot of education that needs to take place. And then there's some other issues, which I'd, I'd like to learn about uh, as well, if I can. Well, Jor, I mean, you, you saw companies, um, who the, the more legitimate crowdfunding deals, right? Because you would see, you, you kind of were across the board, touched almost all of them uh, because you guys did provide the, um, the uh, infrastructure to at least verify the investors and take some of that liability off of people's hands. Um, 
what were some of the things you saw uh, trends that the successful companies versus the unsuccessful companies in, in their deals? Yeah, no, we were, we were fortunate that, you know, if you were going to do a crowdfunded deal or a STO deal using Reg D506C and you wanted to do it correctly, um, you know, there was a good chance you ended up using verifyinvestor.com. So we, we got to see uh, a sample and, um, you know, consistently, I think the better deals um, or the well, let's not say better deals, but consistently the deals that seem to perform the best uh, were either going to be, you know, they, they fell into one of two camps, right? Either we saw that they had a good professional team around them um, so that they took the um, offering seriously. Uh, you know, they, they structure it right with good professional teams. Um, they weren't greedy on the capital raise. Uh, you know, they, they, they really put out a product out there that um, they thought was a good product and was, you know, something that, you know, the public would like. Uh, in some cases, losing money on the first deal. Yeah. Um, and, and that was successful. The other ones were people that kind of understood how to market to the crowd um, and actually be took efforts to market to the crowd. You saw a lot of people that thought that they could crowdfund by just throwing up a website and, yeah. and maybe going right. to a portal and saying, oh, put me on your portal. And the reality is, you know, most of the portals didn't bring them investors. They brought investors to the portal. Yeah. Um, and yeah, we're ta you're talking about Reg D 506C, which is different from the other two exemptions. Well, I mean, in, in all cases, I would say I was constantly, uh, there's a few things to unpack with what George just said that I tell people all the time. Um, uh, I even, I said it the other day at that, the Security Token Academy event, um, is uh, one, people would go to crowdfunding platforms as a last resort because they went, oh, this is this new novel way of raising money. And because they couldn't raise money any other way, they thought this is the magic. Right. So that, that was never a good reason to get into it. But the one most important thing was on Kickstarter and not, not these other places. I bet Kimberly would have a bunch of insight into this is people thought that the crowdfunding platform, uh, the portal, would, would be the one that brings them the investors. And the, the best thing you can say about any of the platforms, the best ones, is that they could maybe amplify the work that you do. There's no, there's no amount of, uh, you know, um, of, uh, uh, I don't even know, there's no amount of effort that, that you could um, give that wouldn't be sort of amplified by, by a good portal. But if you don't do the work yourself, you don't do the marketing yourself, it's never going to happen. Yep. Yeah, and I, I mean, coming from the portal side, um, we told people that as much as we could. Um, there was some value that came in from the portal. Um, typically, you know, the, it would be between like 15 and 40%, sometimes 100%, but those were never high raises, right? Yeah. So, um, you know, typically there was the better, the more that a company was doing to raise um to, to gain attention and to gain followers on its own, that was always going to sort of wash back into the larger community that the portal had. Um, if they if they had nothing and they didn't have a good argument, then it didn't matter how many times a portal hit hit up its own um, email list because the thing that wasn't working in the in the larger 
and scale wasn't going to work within the crowdfunding community either. So Kinsey, you're saying the value that a portal brings is the structure of the offering and the presentation. It's not the marketing. I honestly would say that the main, the main uh, value that a portal brings is that it's a, it's kind of like a mind bending process to go through. And a portal is, is a guide and has a lot of built in tools that kind of says, okay, now you do this. Now you have to do that. Uh, this is how long it's going to take. Um, these are the people you need to be working with and hiring, uh, going in like fully blind or just going in with like a lawyer and a marketing team. Like it could be great. People have done it really well with just a legal team and a marketing team, um, on their own, but it is pretty difficult, uh, especially for like a regulation crowdfunding campaign that's only going to raise up to a million dollars. It's really difficult to do that. So I'd say that that's, that seemed to me in the end to be the biggest value. And then there was a lot of marketing value that came in as well. It just wasn't, wasn't the main draw. Yeah, I think that, that the portal, so I'm actually going through it right now with one of our companies, um, I can't announce it yet, that we work with is, is going through launching a, a deal. And they're going through, and the playbook that the experienced portal gives you is invaluable because they've done it a million times. They could streamline the process. They could save you some some heartache. But the, um, the, the thing I, I always would tell people is that if you can't sell it on the internet, then it's not, it's going to be really hard to sell. Uh, you know, if it's a product, you can't sell through like a Facebook ad and not, ne you're not necessarily a Facebook ad because it might not be legal for the campaign. But if you can't sell something in a Facebook ad, it's probably not going to be a good campaign. And the, um, uh, where, where I was going with, with that as well is the, um, uh, the, the, um, shit, I totally, totally sidetracked my brain with that thought. Um, I don't well, say something. Let me ask you a question. What's your biggest beef with online capital formation in the U S and I'm talking about reg CF, reg A plus and reg D 506 C. Um, I, I don't want to get into the, the nitty gritty of what that all means, but basically these three tiers of the securities exemptions that you can utilize to raise money legally and compliantly online. What's your biggest beef with the industry today? Who are you asking that or to everybody? I want to, I want to ask Alon first and then I want to hear your answer. I mean, Kinsey's too. So my, my, my biggest beef is uh, it's, it's funny because uh, I just, I, I think we, a lot of us got into this for, for the reasons of, uh, of efficiencies and um, sort of leveling the playing field in a way that allows everyone to participate in everything. So like, I, I love, I, I got into it because I, I thought, how come a startup in a random small town couldn't do something or a person who is launching a, I literally, that example that was illegal that I put in the invested index was a friend of mine who wanted to quit his job because he worked at a landscaping company to start his own landscaping company and have his first clients be his evangelist and own a piece of the company. It's, it sounds tiny compared to these, we're talking about unicorns and billion dollar companies in the crypto space, but it's life changing uh, for, for small towns and people around the world. So my, my biggest beef was that it was illegal at first, then when it was legal, the you know, verification process, things like, like what Jor did and, and fixed the process, made it so that if you are public about it, then now you have this extra liability on yourself. That's, that's going upstream into the startup world. But, but now my biggest beef really is, is just that 
people talk about the accredited investor laws and how it's being, you know, it might be fixed and how there might be, you know, uh, uh, what, what are the, um, the tests is to make sure that you are uh, basically smart enough to uh, what's it called? I'm, I'm just the accredited investor test. Yeah, sophistication, the, the sophistication test. So people are saying, well, you know, if you're not an accredited investor, maybe we'll just make a sophistication test to see if you're sophisticated enough to spend your money. And my biggest beef in general is that there's too many rules and hoops and laws to go through it all. But that's just insanely offensive and un-American and crazy. It's just saying that if you're not wealthy enough, then you're stupid and you're not smart enough to participate. Um, so so that, that stuff drives me insane and that's where I kind of go nuts. But in general, there's just too many hoops and what Jor built with Verify Investor, what we were building with Invested In, what, what Kinsey is doing with Prime Trust and, and all of this stuff is making it easier to deal with the laws that, that kind of make you jump through ridiculous hoops. There, there could be, there should be laws. People should not be allowed to scam people. Obviously people should be thrown in jail and there needs to be recourse on, on, on all these things, but they're illegal, yeah. and they're not global and, and they're, they're a pain in the butt to deal with. So that's my biggest pet peeve. And I know I, I've kind of circled around a lot. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I, I think, you know, touching on a few points, I think, you know, the portals over time will, the investor base that they create uh, will become more important, kind of like a Kickstarter right now. Yes, you have to do your marketing, but you know, the, uh, the underlying base of Kickstarter will actually look for investments uh, or not, no, sorry, not investments for sales and purchases um, that they might be interested in. So I think over time, the portals will develop that and certain portals will develop perhaps a, um, certain demographic, which may make them more fit for a particular type of deal than not. Um, but that will take a while. Um, I think when we all kind of got into crowdfunding, it was a very different business because raising capital um, from the crowd um, using kind of social finance uh, for people that were buying and holding things, uh, that's weird. That's the world we grew up in. Um, the world that, you know, got thrown upon us, you know, a year ago or so, a year and a half ago, was this world where um, there was a promise of secondary trading. And then for a period, you had this illegal capital raising moment where people would actually structure things, um, not necessarily for the benefit of price stability in secondary trading, but to maximize the likelihood of uh, getting a large initial sale. And while that ICO craze, you know, was, has died down to some extent, and a lot of that was not done legally, um, you now have STOs uh, that are coming up and they're growing up under the advisement of some consultants that grew up, grew up in ICO space and they're growing up under, you know, get, they're getting consultants that grew up under crowdfunding and regulated roles and they're trying to figure out, like, what should we do? Where is the balance? Because frankly, if the secondary tra trading tanks all the time, then this is going to kill the entire market uh, for quite a while. Um, and you, you get people playing around with structures that sometimes in incentivize a more successful initial sale, but also incentivize, you know, immediate dip in the marketplace when they sell. From in terms of a pet peeve, you know, just to answer your the question you directed, um, Andrew, in general, 
I like the Jobs Act. Um, in general, it's a step in the right direction. I'm not going to look at a gift horse in the mouth and just say, oh, it was horrible and be uh, unappreciative. That being said, um, kind of difficult, kind of impractical, uh, especially Reg CF. Uh, you know, the, the the amounts are not economical. Uh, they, yeah. you know, they should at least make it a larger, um, you know, capital raise. Uh, maybe, maybe not. Maybe get a rid a rid of some of the requirements, but really, if they raise the maximum capital raise, that would do a lot. Reg A plus, same thing. You know, they're caught in this space where if it was like the max raise of 150 million dollars, that might make it more palatable, um, and the burdens may not be that bad. But on the other hand, you know, Reg CF going to five million, I see immediate benefits. Reg A going from 50 to five uh, to 150 million. Um, unless we get quality issuers that want to do that, and unless we get investors that are interested in funding those types of amounts, maybe it's a request that doesn't need to come through. So, so I agree with both you, Alon, and, and you, Joran, what you all said. And there's a couple things that, that I think are very interesting there. And I still want to hear what Kinsey has to say. But you also asked, said the ICOs, the ST, STOs, I think that's a big question right now as to whether the, the, the ICO enthusiasm or euphoria or you, whatever you want to call it, if that's going to transfer into the STO space, I don't know if that is. And I'm kind of curious what you think, but I also want to hear what Kinsey has to say. Um, so, my, so the original question being about our, our beef with the industry, right? Um, I think um, to me, it's like a combination of, of lack of technology in the older systems and also lack of education in the general public. I mean, this is just not something that most Americans don't, don't like learn in school or expect to be spending their, their money investing. Like earlier you're saying you don't understand why is it easier to get somebody to buy something than it is to get them to invest in this, in that exact company that's making the cool thing. It's because they're not used to doing it. It's just not something that they've done before that they've considered at all or that they've seen as part of their future it's not something their parents have done so that's i mean if you if you're coming from a background where there is a lot of wealth um which is obviously a smaller percentage of the overall population then that might be an expectation and, and then in that case you're going to be investing larger amounts of money but if you were trying to participate in this like more widespread smaller investment per investment we don't have we don't have a culture that's really been prepared for that. So you have to educate people and they have to feel comfortable doing it. It's a lot easier to feel like, here's my credit card. I'm going to buy a backpack. This is the coolest backpack. I can't wait to tell my, all my friends about it. Then it is to say, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to pay maybe five times that much to invest in a backpack company and still tell everybody about it. Um, because of the long-term return on that is going to be huge because you're not thinking that way. You've, you've just never done that before. So it's, for me, it's, it's that education is something that we just have to, we have to, everybody's participating in and um, it's just sort of a, the nature of it as it becomes more well-known that people are going to be doing. But for me, I think the thing that annoys me is that our current systems on the traditional side of fundraising are so, um, so complicated and outdated and they really don't make any sense. There's just so many legacies in our trading systems and there's so many middle people that are required and you know if it's a second tuesday on a loop leap year then there's a loophole that you can take advantage of and it just and then you know if you also look at sort of historical um 
like the, the historical patterns of that have led to last, fewer and fewer companies even being able to IPO, which is one of the reasons that we needed Reg A Plus to make it possible to get that kind of liquidity um, for a company that maybe 30 years ago could have just gone public. So that to me is the, is the, are the two things. It's like, we've got this big, we've got this big education gap and then we also have completely outdated systems that in 2019 with the kind of technology, like the leaps and bounds that technology has made over the last 20 years, just doesn't make sense that it hasn't expanded into the financial sector. Yeah, the dinosaurs still rule, huh? <laughs> yeah, not for long, not for yes. long. Di dinosaurs will die. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's challenging, Andrew. You, you kind of asked if the ICOs would translate to STOs. And really what drove ICOs was pure gambling, right? So, you know, what drives STOs um, hopefully is going to be less gambling and more investing. And to Kinsey's point, we don't have a culture, uh, at least not in the U.S., but in many places internationally, we don't have a culture of um uh, saving and investing and knowing how to invest. Um, so, uh, you know, especially in kind of a litigation backed culture like the US, right? If, if the first thing that happens when someone loses money is that they go sue someone else instead of they think about, well, was I, you know, careless in investing? Like if, if someone doesn't look internally to see why they might've lost money in the first place and they immediately go to try to sue people, then it's always going to be hard to kind of get the masses involved. Um, the best bet we have in blockchain, I think, is, you know, for securities is that, you know, it is superior technology for securities market. Securities market is a vibrant and thriving market. And if that whole market adopts blockchain because it's just better technology to do it, then STOs will have to succeed, not because everyone got involved, but because the existing market you know, um, adopted better technology. Now, the hope would be over a period of time, uh, the laws, and we, we're already moving toward that direction, right? Globally, crowdfunding is a thing now. And the Jobs Act is there now, and people are now taking steps to try to make it even more accessible to non-accredited investors, right? If we can combine that movement with the education that Kinsey's talking about, so that people will look to themselves and kind of make better decisions when they're investing, we have a shot of changing how finance works and not just for the betterment of all companies, but the betterment of people who can take investments into their control and hopefully lessen the opportunity gap between the, the haves and the haves not. Yeah. I think it's, it's all, it's all converging in different ways, right? Like the information side, the, the technology, and now the, these, these laws uh, around fundraising and the, the, you know, like, so using, I, I use real estate as an example all the time because I feel like it's just like in the crowdfunding world and tokenization space, it's probably going to be a bit of an on-ramp for, for people who aren't as uh, maybe in the know in the tech startup world and, or, or really even interested. But like, I can explain to my mom that, you know, it's just this access, right? For, it starts off with access because none of us would have been, or maybe not us, uh, but, but I definitely, or maybe my family would never be able to just go like, hey, I want to buy that piece of commercial real estate. No matter how attractive or exciting it might be to own that commercial real estate, we just couldn't afford it. It takes millions of dollars or you know, uh, bank connections and leverage and different things that none of us know anything about, right? 
But if I go to my community and I go, hey, did you know that the building the Starbucks is in on the corner is now being uh, sliced, pun intended, um, <laughs> into uh, a million pieces and you can buy a piece of it for as little as $1,000. And my mom and her friends that literally walk to Starbucks every single uh, Saturday and Sunday morning um, from, from their neighborhood could, could find out about that and go, you know what? We want to own a piece of this building. We could put in $1,000 and every month get a, a $10 dividend uh, directly into our wallet. Um, that, that would be pretty cool. And that's what technology is doing. And the education part is going to start making it, uh, I think, um, a little more palatable and easier. So, so that's the hope, the dream, and the vision. How long does that take, Alon? <laughs> that's, well, I, that's think, I think it takes a while. Sorry to jump in, but yeah, I, I think... Sure. So we all have been taught, like we're all used to that, this conversation. I, start, I, I was the first one to drop that in, like, wouldn't it be great with the backpack or with it, with the Starbucks building, if, if this was an opportunity available. But the thing that we've all, um, the reason it takes a while is because now what if that same Starbucks building is actually being run by people who are kind of desperate and are taking advantage of the community. So technically, yes, they're, it's for sale. Don't you want to own this cool building? But they're maybe not really going to manage it well. And because your mom d isn't really in this world, this is an opportunity for once, or, or it's the first time she's run into this opportunity. She she isn't educated enough to know whether or not she doesn't know what questions to ask. Right. So she's yeah. got to have some trust, and that's one of the really important parts of it for educating the community because we have seen in. The ICO and in the in the crowdfunding space, we've seen companies do do really poorly or not really be what they they led themselves to be, or they they misled. Yeah. Them. Well, I think trust is a is a big factor. Um, sorry, I was just looking down. Um, and the uh, the the thing that's interesting is everybody talks about how there's this this gap between the haves and the have-nots and the people that have millions of dollars get access to deals and the ones that don't don't get access to deals. But there is uh, um, statistics out there and, and there's clear cut um, you know, proof that shows that a majority, so I, I've, I've done this in the past for different um, decks and presentations I've worked on, but the majority of capital raised in I think in the world, but I'll say the United States because I'm more confident about that. A majority of the capital raised in the United States is raised by third-party marketers. Most, you know, that means uh, people, uh, broker-dealers and bankers who, who actually represent each one of these deals. And because we're in the startup world, we might think, well, the CEO of the company goes and, you know, pitches to investors. But a majority of the money raised in real estate deals and all the rest of the deals that happen happen from third-party marketers. So there's an, a company who's basically staking their reputation on the quality of the deal. Something like that has to happen for the masses as well. Yeah, it's not necessarily I think, bad. I think that, I think that the, uh, the very best deals available should be open to the people who, who need it the most. I think the opportunity should be for the masses, not for the few. And I think that's where the regulators and the uh, policymakers, the politicians, they got it totally wrong. They're like, we've got to save these people because they're not smart enough. Instead of saying, how do we get the best deals to these people that need to shrink that, that wealth gap that has emerged too, too, too far in this country? Yeah, they've, they've definitely overcomplicated things. I mean, look, from 
from a accredited, non-accredited perspective, I think in the current you know, climate, the non-accredited market, even with the, even with the legal changes, et cetera, even if they could come in, um, it's going to take a while. Um, it's, and it's going to take a while because if you go down to the street and you randomly grab people and you ask them, hey, what's your favorite company in the whole wide world? A lot of them will say, oh, Apple, Nike, you know, something like that. And then if you ask them, hey, did you know you could invest in them? You know, maybe a percentage of them will say no, but you know, a fair amount of people know that Apple is a public company. They know Nike is a public company. They know they could buy stock in it. Then you ask them, do you buy it? And a lot of them are gonna say no. So the, and that's your typical non-accredited investor, right? They, 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 the company that they love more than anything they won't even invest in. And now you're going to try to sell them a complicated financial product, um, you know, online. So without the education, I think that's what the ways off. The reason why I think that I'm still optimistic that tokenization uh, takes off is uh, a few things, right? If you ask anyone basically, Hey, are paper stock certificates better or digital stock certificates better? Most people are going to say, well, digital. Then if you ask someone the next question, which is, Hey, you know, if you could just trust one person to keep track of that digital stock certificate, would you rather do that? Or would you rather trust like, you know, 20 different people for much more cost or less cost and to keep track of that? Most people will say, yeah, you know, pretty good. You know, let's, let's have multiple people keep track of that. Well, if the answer <laughs> to both of those questions is yes, then there is no publicly known technology that allows that uh, that, that delivers a solution other than blockchain or decentralized ledger technology, right? And that alone isn't sufficient for market to get adoption. But when you get all the major players, like every major investment bank, Goldman, JP Morgan, um, you know, even the retail banks, Bank of America, uh, et cetera. And then you get the ex exchanges, NASDAQ, uh, New York Stock Exchange, they're all looking at this. And they're all saying like, there's going to be a future here suddenly I'm optimistic that like, this is really going to be a thing where people are going to move into this industry and then hopefully later the non-accredited investors come on as well. So you're, so you're saying the back office, it's not very sexy, but it's really important. And right now it costs a lot of money, which I agree with. But I think that the, the, the vision of STOs comes with increased liquidity and access, but also uh, new asset classes emerging that, that makes it easier to, to participate in promising ventures uh, or other types of, uh, you know, real estate or whatever. Yes, but, you know, new asset classes is probably a little bit more complicated as well. There's nothing that you can do with a token that you can, like, duplicate through some sort of investment contract on paper, right? So token is just, you know, it didn't change what you could do, but it changed human behavior. It changed, like, what people would do, um, you know, within the realm of possibility. Um, but to your point, you know, Alon, and, and, um, is with the current laws, they, they don't make sense. Like, look, I run a credit investor verification company, right? You know, this company probably makes more money doing credit investor verifications than, you know, pretty much anyone in the world. And it's not a business we necessarily want to be in. I mean, the verification laws to prove that you're accredited don't all make sense. And then it's just, just I, yeah, it's, it's asinine 
the evidence that someone has to come up with but, um, repeatedly. And then also, um, it, it doesn't protect the investor. Like the issuer that's going to scam the investor is still going to be there to scam the investor. Now they just might have more information to scam the investor with. But the other thing also is this whole definition, right? Like if you really wanted to get the masses involved and you want, and, and if the whole premise was that, oh, they don't need protection because they're either um, rich or they know better, right? So let's deal with one of them. If the idea is that like, well, they're rich, they can afford to lose money. Well, fine. Then I guess if that's your premise, then uh, the poor should not have the same investment opportunities. But if the idea is that like, um, we don't want the rich to only be able to invest in opportunities, you want more people to invest in it, then you would have to let, you know, I guess the poor come and invest as well. If the idea is that the rich can invest because they're more sophisticated, then one, I, I say that's bullshit. Like, you know, a, a lot of accredited investors are not particularly bright and a lot of non-accredited investors are um, very bright. So I the agree. guide, yeah. So one of the solutions might be, well, if you're worried that they can't protect themselves, instead of telling them they can't do anything, what if you just said, like, no matter what you invest in, you sign this separate statement. It's the same statement for everybody that says, like, no matter what someone has told me, I realize this is risky. I could lose money. These are the re types of reasons why I could lose money. It's just a one-page disclaimer. So they actively sign it. Um, and then you have some requirement that says for every deal that is open to non-accredited investors, X percent must be bought by accredited investors, right? Then if it was good enough for the rich, it's good enough for the poor, theoretically, you know, and maybe you get away, you, you get rid of a, 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 a lot of this verification stuff and you open up more opportunity. You, you know, uh, I, mean, I think you make a good point there. And um, the way it's structured right now, the, the government has disenfranchised the vast majority of the population. And that's not good. In fact, history shows us it's a bad thing to do. And there's still people on Capitol Hill that want to make it even more difficult for the smaller guy, the little guy, to gain access to promising uh, ventures. Um, but I, I remain optimistic that something will happen at some point in time in this Congress. I think, I think that, you know, using Verify Investor as an example is the rules and laws are going to change. Uh, government's going to be much slower than we ever want them to be when it comes to changing them. And they're probably never going to be perfect and they're probably going to screw a bunch of crap up. And that's just a part of, a part of it. But Verify Investor is an example of a rule that's, that's kind of insane, right? Because they basically didn't change anything other than who is liable for, for uh, lying about verification. So before the rules changed, I would put a piece of paper in front of an investor and they would check three boxes basically saying that I'm an accredited investor. I make this much. I do this. I do this. I do this. And then if they lied to me, I could show them that piece of paper. And I said, well, you are the person who said you, you can afford this and you're allowed to do this. And what changed was when you publicly solicited, if Kinsey lied to me, she could then sue me after the fact and say, I wasn't actually an accredited investor and it's, it's the liabilities on me. So Verify Investor created a streamlined, simple process of taking that liability that would have come on the company and put it uh, and, and kind of uh, take it away from the company. So I think that all this technology will fix a lot of that, those problems and we are dealing in the regulated world and, and, and all that. And so 
Um, we, we should try to wrap this up because we're a little over time and we, we started a little late. So um, uh, I, will, I would love for each person to, to give um, just a quick where we can find you, um, uh, you know, uh, promote whatever you're working on right now. And, uh, and I will, you know, happily have any of you guys back and we'll do this more often. It'll be a lot of fun. So um, let's, uh, let's go reverse order now. Kinsey, where, where can we find you and tell us a little bit about Prime Trust? Uh, you can find me um, via email, kinsey at primetrust.com, on Twitter um, or on LinkedIn under Kinsey Cronin. Um, and Prime Trust is a tech-driven trust company that provides um, the services of a regulated uh, financial institution to crypto and um, equity crowdfunding companies um, as a back-end service so that they can build their business without needing to do all of the funds processing um, that's involved. Cool. Jor? Uh, yeah. Um, for, for me, it's simple, easy to remember. Contact Jor at prettygooddomain.com. If you're trying to get in touch with uh, T0, sales at T0.com. If you're trying to get in touch with uh, Verify Investor, uh, just support at verifyinvestor.com. Love it. And Andrew? Yeah. Please visit and read crowdfundinsider.com. That's crowdfundinsider.com. We cover all of fintech, including STOs um, and other forms of online capital formation. If you want to get a hold of me, tweet me directly at, at Andrew R. Dix, D-I-X, uh, on Twitter, and I'd love to hear from you. Awesome. And everyone, thank you for, for listening. Um, connect with me on LinkedIn, uh, Alon Gorin, or on Twitter. Um, go to securitytokensummit.com or cis.la and uh, come hang out with us all in April. Um, thank you guys so much for coming. Uh, I really, really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Boom. Hey, everyone. Alon here. Uh, I am doing this quick little episode. Uh, let's not even call it an episode. Uh, let's call it a, not a pilot, a, a, a trailer for the next season of Security Tokens Uncensored. So as you know, uh, or may not know, the previous eight episodes have done incredibly well. Uh, where we averaged well over, I think, 8,000 or so listens an episode. The most popular episode, the one with Ami Ben David from Onera um, and partner of mine, has just surpassed 10,000 listens. So, very, very happy and excited for how the first eight episodes uh, went. And so, I wanted to give a little preview of what the future holds because I have been a bit uh, procrastinating and a bit slow in starting up the podcast again after our last set of events. So uh, last uh, April, we had Security Tokens, uh, Security Token Summit. We had CIS in LA. Both events went incredibly well. Um, We had over 500 of the top folks in our industry at the Ritz-Carlton in Los Angeles for Security Token Summit. Um, it, was, it was an amazing uh, day, and then it flowed right into CIS, 
which brought in about 4,000 people from around the world to talk about crypto, blockchain, and security tokens. Um, We are, uh, on Friday, we will be 60 days away from the next CIS. Uh, It'll be October 15th and 16th. On the uh, 14th, we'll probably have an opening party. And all around it, we have LA Blockchain Week, which is going to be really incredible. Um, We will definitely have, just like last October, a security token track within CIS. Last October, there was over 300 seats in the room. Um, 6,000 people came collectively to the event. Um, And those 300 seats in the side room that had the security token track were were packed from beginning to end. We expect that to happen again. And we're really excited for the speakers and the announcements we have coming, which are going to really start uh, on Friday um, when we're 60 days out. Um, A little update about us. uh, And by us, I mean uh, Joseph Holm, my partner and I started something called Gorin Home Group, um, which uh, also contains uh, Gorin Home Ventures. And Gorin Home Ventures is our venture studio. We started uh, pretty much, uh, we announced it at the last events. Uh, It's going really, really well. We've got nine portfolio companies. We incubate and accelerate companies. Um, of those nine portfolio companies, uh, some of the ones you've, you've definitely heard of are, are like Onera um, with Ami Ben David, who I just mentioned before. Um, uh, I'm thinking about the security token space ones like uh, Vertalo and, uh, and we have a, a bunch of others. So go to gorenholm.com, G-O-R-E-N-H-O-L-M.com to see the whole portfolio. And you're going to be hearing a lot more about that soon. We joined the Draper Venture Network, which is a network of Tim Draper's uh, funds from around the world. Um, uh, And it's really, really exciting to be a part of that. And one of the great initiatives we're doing as part of that is that they're going to have a private lounge at the next CIS where all of the funds and their hundreds of portfolio companies will have a space to be at CIS, which will encourage more participation from the investors, which is what we always wanted for CIS. So we we have been and will continue to be the largest investment-focused blockchain summit in the world. And now we'll actually have more participation from uh, venture capitalists and angel investors um, than, than ever before. So we're really, really excited for that. Um, I hope I'm not rambling too much. I just wanted to give everyone the, the latest update. Uh, what, what else do uh, I want to say? Um, you may have just heard some crazy loud noises. I'm actually driving down PCH right now while recording this uh, on the way to another meeting. I hope to, to post the first uh, episode of season two of Security Tokens Uncensored and give a bunch of discount codes for the next events and everything on Friday. Um, If you are one of the few hundred people who are subscribed to this and hearing it pretty immediately uh, before Friday, make sure to uh, register for CIS if you plan to, because you'll probably save about $100 if you do before then. Um, I will be sharing links to submit questions for AMA uh, versions of this, ask me anything kind of versions of this podcast, where I 
bring the top industry experts to answer your questions. If I can't answer it myself, I will be uh, requesting people to submit, um, you know, who of their friends or who in the industry they want to have on the podcast. Um, We will be doing them regularly for sure from now until CIS, and I hope to continue afterwards. But as you know, it can get pretty busy and crazy leading up to the event and for the last couple weeks after the events. So I will do my best. Um, I'm going to have some of the regulars back like Andrew Dix, like Ami, um, like Dave uh, Hendricks, like, uh, let's see who uh, else, um, uh, like, like Henry, like all these people that, that did, did, did an incredible job on, on the podcast before. And we'll have a lot of new people on. So tune in. Thanks for uh, bearing with me on this more boring rambling pilot, not pilot, what did we call it? A uh, um, um, trailer episode of this. I, I appreciate all of you and all of the sharing you've done. It's only because of you that we've gotten this far and had this many uh, this many shares and listens of the podcast. So thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, and thank you. See you soon. Hey everyone, Alon here. I just finished recording a quick sort of trailer recap future episode of this podcast and I waited till the end to do the most important part. So I'm recording this little segment at the beginning just to say thank you. Thank you. Yes, you. Because you, if you're listening to this trailer episode, are probably one of the few thousand people who are subscribed to this on iTunes or Stitcher or uh, or one of the many podcast apps. You are one of the people who are probably sharing the app or the podcast the most. And you are one of my favorite people in the world. And I really, really thank you. So without saying the same thing over and over and over again, without further ado the trailer for season two of security tokens uncensored which i was just told by a friend of mine who may have been kissing my butt so we'll have to confirm it that it is the most popular security token podcast in existence which might not be that hard thank you